I'd love it if, if we could just uh, kind of hang in this moment um, just a, a few seconds longer. I, I'd like to just invite you um, individually to, uh, to just ask the Holy Spirit to, to begin to speak to you. Your, your mind and your heart would be open to what it is that he wants to say in the few moments that we have. So just invite you to just ask him. One way you can do that is to extend your hands. You don't have to. It's not magic, but just a way of saying, I receive. So just take a moment to just ask the Holy Spirit to breathe life into you. to receive from you and hear what you want to say to us this morning. Speak to us, Lord. Our souls need the nourishment of your word. expecting hearts dependent on you to give us what we need in Jesus name Amen so Caroline and I um, have been married for almost a decade. To some of you, that sounds like a long time. To some of you, that sounds like a week. Um, we've been married almost a decade. And, and I just wanted to share with you, uh, kind of, so everyone will kind of know, so that there won't be any surprises. I just, I want to share with you that uh, while we have decided that, yes, we, we will continue to be married, um, We've chosen to discontinue speaking to one another, and uh, and we're we're not going to speak anymore to one another. No words. Um, we also have decided that that moving in that direction, it would probably also make sense that we would just discontinue spending any time together. We're not going to spend any time together. We're not going to speak to one another. Um, if if in fact we have an issue or there's confusion or conflict or hurt feelings, we, we're, we're not going to talk through that. We're just going to keep it inside. And, and perhaps even, m- maybe even use the method of just blaming each other silently without actually talking about it. We figured that long as we're moving in this direction, we might as well just say, hey, we also might decide to just spend some time with some other folks of the opposite sex. But we're going to remain married, okay? And everything's fine, all right? We're just going to remain married. Well, clearly by some of your chuckles, you realize how absolutely absurd that declaration would be if it were in fact true, which it is not. 
But isn't that what we do, me included, isn't that what we often do with our relationship with God? Oh, yes, I certainly know God. I certainly have a relationship with God. I'm not particularly going to talk to him. I'm not particularly going to spend time with him. And when things go wrong, I'm not going to really be honest and truthful with him about what I'm struggling with. I'm just going to blame him for it. And I'm probably even going to give my worship and adoration and attention to other people and other things as well. You see, if, if you were to think of the best relationship you've ever had, it may be a spouse, it may be a friend, it may be a family member, maybe a girlfriend or boyfriend, maybe a son or daughter. The best relationship or relationships that you ever had had some characteristics to them. Communication, time spent together, sharing conflict in a healthy way and being honest about the way that things make you feel and ultimately being committed and faithful to that relationship. All of those things are foundational principles to healthy relationships and I would argue they're biblical principles to healthy relationships. Now we're going to take a look at, at this idea of relationship this morning but we're going to look at it not as much in human relationships as much as how it impacts and affects our relationship to God and with God. And we're going to take a look at an individual from God's Word who I think really shows us what an authentic relationship with God really looks like. His name is David, and he was a king. He was the second king of Israel, and just to give you a little background on David, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the story, which began, of course, with creation and God creating the first man and the first woman and then the fall of man where they ate of the fruit they were instructed not to and that relationship with God was broken, fractured in a way that infected and affected all of us and all of humanity for all time. In that moment, God began to unfold a plan that would ultimately reconnect that relationship between humanity and himself. He made a promise to a man named Abraham that he would make him a blessing and that he would bless him and that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars that he could see in the sky, too many to count. From Abraham came the, the child of promise, which was Isaac. Isaac carried on the promise to his children and ultimately to his son, Jacob, who was quite a sneaky little rascal. Ultimately, he had what we would come to know as the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, his sons. And one of those tribes came from one of his sons named Judah. And Bible, the Bible will tell us that the tribe of Judah would be the tribe that the Son of God would be brought to the earth through. Which is why if you've ever heard him referred to as the Lion of Judah, Jesus himself, that is where that comes from. Well, between Judah and Jesus, 
There's a whole lot of people. A lot of them you would recognize. One, in fact, is King David. King David was uh, of that lineage, and he would, would actually be the line that Jesus himself would come from. We're going to spend some time learning about him, but I want us to understand that we are listening to pieces of a story that are coming from God's word, which means this is 100% true. This is not a fairy tale. Some of the stories of the Old Testament in particular, and David, think of David and Goliath, they've almost become fairy tales, right? They've almost become like Cinderella. But this is actually history. This actually happened. This is from God's word. It comes from the Bible, and the Bible is 100% true because we believe that it is the very word of God. And it is infallible, and it is the only thing that we can turn to to know how to interact with God, interact in the church, and to love our community and serve our community in the way that Jesus did. We look at God's word for the infallible truth and grace that dictates how we live. And so we're reading and looking at a story that's true. This is a, sto- a, a true story that we're going to learn about David. One of the things that was written about David in Acts, and, uh, and this is one of um, uh, Paul, I believe Paul was giving a sermon or sharing a testimony, and he's talking about different people from the Old Testament. He says, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. So God is saying, David was a man after his own heart. Now the question I would like for us to pose this morning, and the question that I've wrestled with in, in my own life in reading about David is having a heart after God, is that truly attainable? Is that truly attainable? And what does that look like? Because on the surface, it sounds like it's a heart that's perfectly in tune with God. It's a heart that almost is without blemish. It's a heart that always does the right thing. It's a heart that always has the right response to God. But when we begin to dig a little deeper, I think we begin to see that this heart after God is not as much about the perfection of the heart as it is who the heart is in relationship with. What we see in this statement is that this is a statement of relationship. This has less to do with how great David's heart was and more to do with who David's heart was focused upon, who his heart was in relationship with. And we know that that would be God. So we're going to take a look at this idea of relationship and what does it actually mean to have a heart after God. And here's here's our big idea. Our big idea is this. Relationship plus stay in it. I wanted to put perseverance there, but I just thought stay in it just painted the picture I wanted to paint. Relationship plus stay in it equals a heart for God. What you're going to see with David is that he stayed in relationship with God through the ups, 
through the downs. God was always faithful when David even wasn't faithful. But David, even when, when he was not faithful, the anchor of his life continued to be his relationship with God. And so he stayed in it through it all. He stayed in it. When he'd go off, he'd come back and he'd stay in it. Relationship plus stay in it equals a heart for God. I wanted to find a psalm because most of you know that David wrote a lot of the psalms. He was a songwriter and a musician. I relate a lot to the way that he communicates because I feel like as myself being a musician and also a songwriter, I feel like I can understand some of the emotion that he taps into. I wanted to find a psalm that would articulate the relationship that David had with God. And I found Psalm 16. I thought it did such a great job of showing us the kind of relationship he had with God. And uh, this is actually the message paraphrase. So if you're following along in a different translation, uh, just know that this will read a a little bit different. But I love some of the, the words that were chosen here by Eugene Peterson. Keep me safe, O God. I've run for dear life to you. I say to God, be my Lord. Without you, nothing makes sense. And these God-chosen lives all around, what splendid friends they make. Don't just go shopping for a God. Gods are not for sale. I swear I'll never treat God names like brand names. My choice is you, God, first and only. And now I find I'm your choice. You set me up with a house and yard, and then you made me your heir. The wise counsel God gives when I'm awake is confirmed by my sleeping heart. Day and night, I'll stick with God. See, he's saying, I'm, I'm staying in it right there. I'll stick with God. I've got a good thing going, and I'm not letting go. I'm happy from the inside out, and from the outside in, I'm firmly formed. You canceled my ticket to hell. That's not my destination. Now you've got my feet on the life path, all radiant from the shining of your face. Ever since you took my hand, I'm on the right way. Now does that sound like someone who is wrapped up in stale religion? Does that sound like someone who's just making sure that they keep all the rules? Just doing that checklist every day. We kept the rules. No. This sounds like someone who is in a loving relationship with someone that they have literally placed their life in the hands of. And he's, I love that line where he says, I'm staying with it. I'm sticking with it. I'm not going to turn. Now, as we read that, I, th- I think that if, if your heart does what my heart does, I go, man, there's, there are phrases here, there are parts here where my heart just, it's not lining up. I mean, th- there's parts of that that I go, man, I wish I could have that kind of connection in, in certain areas of my life. And I, I wish that I could have that kind of conversation. I wish that I could have that, that kind of um, interaction and closeness to God. I just don't know if I can be a person after God's heart. And if you're anything like me, you've asked that question. Can I really be a person after God's heart? Well, what I want us to look at today is six examples from David's life that really reflect 
I think they really reflect things that you and I wrestle with. As I looked through them, I thought, I think at some point in my life, I have wrestled with every single one of these circumstances. And so we're going to look at six of these, and this is how it goes. It's going to go, I can't be a person after God's heart because, and then we're going to fill in those, uh, those blanks of each of those statements, okay? So it says, I can't be a person after God's heart because, first, nobody even knows my name, but there's going to be a follow to every one of these uh, that's going to start with the word but. Nobody even knows my name, but if I have a relationship with God, he will find me. Now, I can tell you this is something that I struggled with, uh, I've struggled with in ministry, of thinking, I don't know if any of this even matters. Nobody even knows my name. I've never written a book. I'm not being interviewed on Pierce Morgan, you know. Nobody's calling me. Nobody's asking me to come speak at a big conference and nobody's, you know, does this even matter? Nobody even knows my name. I wrestled a lot with this as we were preparing to start this church, to be quite honest with you. And I can remember sitting uh, or standing in Starbucks where I had, uh, I had left my uh, job at a large church with benefits and a steady salary and all of these wonderful, comfortable things that made life uh, a lot more predictable than it has been over the last couple of years. And I remember standing in Starbucks and washing a coffee urn in the sink and thinking, here I am with my college degree, my almost 10 years of working in, in church, experience and I remember thinking, how in the world is the Lord going to find me here? How's he going to find me back here? Certainly he's not looking in the washroom at Starbucks. Is he? And in that moment, the Lord spoke to my heart. Some of you have heard me tell this story. He spoke to my heart because I'm going to be honest. Up to that point, I thought I was the Lord's gift to church ministry. I thought, you know, really most churches would be pretty lucky to have a guy like me. I'm actually pretty awesome. You know? Pretty amazing. And God spoke to me in that moment and he said, what I've got for you next, I'm going to have to humble you for you to do it. And he's been doing that ever since. If you feel like nobody knows your name, he'll find you when it's time. He knows where you are. David had a similar circumstance. David was out tending to the sheep when Samuel came to his home. Samuel was on a mission from God to find the next king of Israel. What a mission, huh? God sent him to the house of Jesse. But as God does often, he didn't tell him the name of the person he was looking for. He just said, go to the house of Jesse. I'll tell you what to do when you get there. So he gets there and Jesse marches all these, these, uh, these strapping, strong uh, 
you know, tough warrior kind of guys, all these sons out in front, guys that kind of look like me, you know, those kind of guys. Why are you laughing? That wasn't a joke. And Samuel continues to say, no, that's, that's not God's choice. That's not God's choice. And I think as the Lord was telling him, no, it, it seems a little bit like Samuel was even a little confused. Like, that looks like a king to me. And the Lord says something to Samuel in that moment in 1 Samuel 17, 37. He says, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so it gets down where he's gone through all the sons and he looks at Jesse and he's like, do you have any more? And Jesse goes, oh yeah, yeah, well, there's David, but he's in the field. You don't really want to see him. He forgot about him. David's out in the field, potentially, you know, scooping poop for sheep and keeping them where they need to go and making sure they don't get uh, attacked by wild animals. Not a glamour job by any means. And he marches him in and the Lord says, that's the one. He anointed him right there as the king. Right there. Nothing spectacular about him forgotten in the lineup of all the boys, but the Lord found him. He found him. And he'll find you when it's time. I can't be a person after God's heart because I can't overcome my impossible situation. But if I have a relationship with God, I am positioned to do the impossible. I'm positioned to do the impossible. God specializes in the impossible. It was impossible to bring humanity back into relationship with God. So God sent his son, his own son, to make a way. That was impossible for you and I. We all know, many of us know the story of Goliath. The nation of Israel is under attack from the Philistines and There's a huge, mighty warrior named Goliath for the Philistines that is taunting the nation of Israel and God, ultimately. All of the best warriors for the nation of Israel are shaken in their armor, scared to death. David shows up, and he says, I'll fight him. We're not going to let anyone dishonor the Lord, certainly, are we? And so David says this. I think this is telling about David's heart versus the others that were there. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. In our vernacular, that would be, Good luck with that. All right? Good luck with that. And he went out there with a, with a stone and killed a giant. That's impossible, right? You're positioned because the power that used that stone to kill Goliath is the power that, that raised Jesus from the dead. It's also the power that lives in you when you are in relationship with God. And that power positions you 
to do the impossible. Don't let the impossible situation neutralize you for the kingdom. I can't be a person after God's heart because I am alone and forgotten. But if I have a relationship with God, I can know that I am in good company when I feel rejected. Not too long after the whole Goliath uh, saga, David ends up in the court of King Saul, the first king of Israel, who was being oppressed by an evil spirit. Uh, We know uh, in hindsight and reading God's word that at What was going on was the Lord had taken his favor and his anointing and his blessing from Saul. And so Saul was just open to all kinds of of, uh, oppression and uh, things that were... uh, He he had no protection from the Lord as he did when he was under his favor and anointing. So David goes to play music for Saul. And it soothes his mind and his soul. But it's not long, you know, you can imagine in a, in a, uh, a nation where someone has literally saved the country from a threat with a stone, that person kind of gets known a little, don't they? And so it wasn't long that Saul became very jealous of David and he sought to kill him, ended up chasing David out into, uh, out into exile. He lived in caves and at one point he was even uh, in hiding with the Philistines, which I think sounds odd, and they kicked him out after not very long. And so he was just on his own. He was alone and rejected and forgotten. And he actually wrote several psalms about that time. This is one of them, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He starts out with this psalm saying, where are you? How long do I have to be here, rejected and alone? But then he comes back to this truth of what he knows to be God's faithfulness. Because even in the darkest of moments, the Lord was faithful to David. I think that psalms like this are are prayers, of course, but I think as much as they're prayers, they're also conversations that a person's having with themselves, right? Over here, they're saying, I'm alone, I'm destitute, where is God? And then they're reminding themselves of his love and his faithfulness and his goodness throughout their life. This is a real honest moment for David. He's being authentic with himself and with the Lord to say, I don't like where I'm at. I don't feel you. I don't see you. I don't hear you. Where are you? Because I know that your love has never left me. I know that you're faithful to me. So he's talking himself down again, right? There's this conversation going on. You are in good company, not just David, but in Matthew 27, 45 and 46 says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, 
Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lamba sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very son of God hanging on the cross, feeling alone and rejected in the moment that he gave his life for us. I can't be a person after God's heart because I have done terrible things. But if I have a relationship with God, then forgiveness is mine. David walked this path too. 2 Samuel 11 says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, those couple sentences don't seem like that big of a deal, do they? But there's something that sticks out. At a time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. David was out of place, wasn't he? He wasn't where he should have been. We don't know why, but he wasn't where he should have been. And he looks, if you know the rest of the story, which you may or may not, he looks out uh, from the palace and sees a beautiful woman bathing. And because he wasn't in the place he was supposed to be, which his heart was also not in the place that it was supposed to be, he longed after that woman. He wanted her. And he sent for her to come to him. And in those days, when a king sent for something the king wanted, the king would get what he wanted. He slept with her, got her pregnant, and then sent for her husband, who was out fighting the war where David should have been. He calls him in and he congratulates him on a good battle. He says, now I'd love for you to go home and spend the night with your wife. Well, her husband says, I couldn't do that. All all respect, king, I I couldn't do that, your majesty. I, I can't go spend the night with my wife while all of my counterparts are out fighting and giving up their lives for our nation. I can't do it. Another opportunity to come clean, and what does he do? He gets him drunk. Figures if he gets him compromised, inebriated, he could get him to go home to his wife, sleep with her. Then there would be uh, no question about where the baby came from. The morning he finds that the husband has fallen asleep at the city gate. Even in a drunken stupor, his character is stronger than David's in this moment. Bathsheba, who was the woman with child, David did what at the time he felt the only thing he could do. He calls in the leader of his army and says, we're going to send, uh, we're going to send him back out. And when the fighting gets the worst, put him on the front line. And then pull your men back and allow the enemy to consume him. 
adultery, deceit, drunkenness, and now murder. A man after God's heart. He's confronted, though he didn't realize it at the time, the prophet Nathan comes. To make a long story short, he tells him, there's a man who has one lamb and a man who's wealthy and has many. The wealthy man decided he wants the one from the person who only has one. He takes that person's lamb and kills him. Kills the man. Enraged, David jumps from his throne and says, that man should be executed. Nathan turns and looks him in the face and says, the man is you. David rips his clothes. He's in mourning. He's broken. And he says, I have sinned against God. Where'd he go right back to? Right back to that relationship with God. I've sinned against God. Because if you recognize that you've sinned against God, then it trickles down everywhere from there and you realize the magnitude of that sin. Bathsheba gives birth and loses the child. David mourns, fasts and prays. Coming out on the other side of it, the Lord reminds him again of the promise that he made to him, that he would be faithful to him and his family. That never changes. Because you see, in 1 John 1, 9, we learn that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Were there consequences for David? There sure were. Did God forgive him? When he came to him with a broken heart, he sure did. I can't be a person after God's heart because I have failed with my family. But if I have a relationship with God, then he can help me build a bridge back to my family. David had really gaping holes of bad parenting in his story. He had a son who raped one of his daughters, another son who killed that son and ultimately rebelled and tried to overthrow him from the kingdom and kill him. Several of the Psalms that, like we read earlier, were written during times when he, was, he had, had to flee the kingdom because his son was going to kill him. And through all of this, you don't find a whole lot more than 2 Samuel 13, 21. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. No intervention. No counseling session with the family. He didn't even ever say much about it other than he was just angry. But I, I think that 
though he failed with his family, you and I can learn from that because Matthew 5 says this. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You can build, begin the process of building a bridge back to that relationship. David in his final moments gave words of wisdom to his son Solomon, things that he had learned. He finally speaks up as a father, gives him instruction and tells him of the, of the legacy of his relationship with God. David extended the bridge back into his family. You and I can only build half of the bridge with God's help. The other person has to build the other half. But if you extend the opportunity and you're willing to say, forgive me, I've failed, I'm sorry, then that builds your half of the bridge. And when they're ready, they'll build the other half. Don't ever give up fighting for your family. It took David a while, but he came around. I can't be a person after God's heart, last one, because I am full of selfish ambition and pride. But if I have a relationship with God, then he will find a way to humble me. Towards the end of his reign, David decided he wanted to see just how big his kingdom was. So he asked his, uh, the chief of his army to come. He says, let's count all of the able-bodied warriors that we have. Bring me the number. I want to see how vast my kingdom has become. And as soon as the number came back to him, his heart was grieved because he realized that he had done wrong. And instead of recognizing that the kingdom that was built was God's kingdom, as a matter of fact, when the Lord speaks to David, he doesn't refer to him as a king. He refers to him as a prince because God's the king. Instead of recognizing that, David wanted to look at all he had done. And the Lord punished him for that. He sent a famine to the people. And David, once again brokenhearted, spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, these people, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Second Samuel 24. David recognized his sin and was willing to take responsibility for it. There's one of two things that can happen when selfish ambition exists in the heart of a Christ follower. Either you can choose to humble yourself or over time God will find a way to humble you himself. Speaking from experience, it's easier to humble yourself. 
Or maybe I should say, it's less painful to humble yourself. 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you. So what are our next steps? There's, there's three of them. Number one, I'd love for you to read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and look for yourself in David's story. And say, like, what does that mean? I'm not in there. Well, what it means is what things in these two books are things that you can relate to? What are stories that you can draw insight from? What ways, um, what ways are these stories speaking to you? And then number two, which of these but statements, and there's six of them here. These are the, I can't be a person after God's heart. Nobody knows my name, but if I have a relationship with God, he will find me. Those statements, which of those statements do you most identify with? And then I'm going to invite you to email me. And I'm going to invite you to let me know which one of those statements you most identify with at this point in your life. And I'm going to send you a devotion this week based upon that statement, based upon that statement and those scriptures. I'm going to send you something that you can do this week to go a little bit further and a little bit deeper with uh, that particular statement that you feel applies most directly to you. The third thing is we'd like to invite you to the Alpha course. Alpha is always the first and next step at any point. It's always appropriate to take that step if you haven't taken it here at Renovation. And you can come this Wednesday at 6 o'clock.